Hello, and welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton with the Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of safety, security, and protection through conversations with leaders in the field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Dr. Welton Chang. Welton is the co-founder and CEO of Pura Technologies, a threat intelligence company that scans unmoderated social media with AI. Most recently, he was the first technology officer at Human Rights First and founded HRF's Innovation Lab. Prior to joining HRF, Welton was a senior researcher at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, where he led teams and developed technical solutions to address disinformation and online propaganda. Welton served for nearly a decade as an intelligence officer at the Defense Intelligence Agency and in the Army, including two operational tours in Iraq and a tour in South Korea. Welton, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks so much for having me today, Fred. It's an honor to be on. Tell us a little bit about your company. What exactly does Pira do? We're a threat intelligence company based in Washington, D.C. We help clients scan the alternative social media networks for threats, both reputational and physical. So we're going out to the smaller social media platforms that exist, bringing that data in and using AI to help our clients parse through it all. I know you and I bumped into each other at uh, a large security event, and I know you're in a space that's fascinating today. And and you said something that kind of stuck with me that the difference between what you do and other social media kind of monitoring companies. Could you explain a little bit about how you work your magic? Yeah, and Fred, it was it was really nice to get to meet you in person. Um, your reputation certainly preceded you, and one of the things that I think we noticed while we started doing our, our research, uh, this was Eric and I probably in the 2018, 2019 timeframe when everyone was talking about disinformation and how it impacted the presidential election of 16. The landscape of smaller social media platforms, places like 4chan, Eight Coon, these are places where some of your listeners may have already heard of before. They were starting to explode at that point. Part of this was moderation taking place on the bigger platforms, uh, Twitter and Facebook primarily, people being deplatformed from the larger um, ecosystems and, and seeking refuge in the smaller places where they can continue to have those social conversations but basically face less scrutiny. And our focus as a company is on those spaces. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, these are places online where um, mass shooters have posted their manifestos previously, where folks have become radicalized over time by the content. And we we saw uh, a necessity to go after 
the content in these places because of the threats that we're seeing emerge um, out of out of these uh, you know less moderated, almost unmoderated um, social conversations. It's really kind of the new frontier in this space, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that more and more people are getting wise to it. Certainly, when we start talking to potential clients, they usually have a familiarity with maybe one or two, a few of the spaces where we collect data from, like Telegram, for example. But the vast ecosystem, when we show them a slide that has all the logos of these places, um, when we show them our platform capabilities, we're pulling in content from 24 different places right now. That's when their eyes get opened and they look at that and they say, wow, I didn't even know all those sites existed. Um, and that's the, that's the challenge is just keeping up with the explosion of new places. That's, that's a full-time job in and of itself. And we take that burden really off of um, analysts who have better things to do with their time. They're doing the hard work of putting the pieces together. Um, let the machine go and do the the uh, less glamorous work of data collection. Yeah, that's simply amazing. And the the evolution of technology and the time I've been in this space. I I got in the business in '81 when we were still working with typewriters and three by five index cards, Welton. So uh, it's it's amazing for me to watch uh, this progression over the years. Now. You've had a fascinating career, and I know you began as an intelligence officer in the U.S. Army. Help our listeners understand how you got into this space. I'm always uh, amazed as to how folks uh, get into our line of work. Yeah, I wish I had a story for you that showed some kind of strategic plan for my career. <laughs> um, I think I think one of the things I, when I get asked by students what they should be thinking about doing in the, in the future. One of the things I try to emphasize to them is that um, sometimes you just uh, move from place to place and you um, kind of cobble something together that resembles, in hindsight, uh, something that makes a lot of sense. But looking forward, looking, at the, looking into the horizon, um, I, I don't know uh, what I'll be doing, you know, say, five years from now. Um, I'm sure there are other people who have more of a long-term plan, but I think for for me, and I think this is also for the other folks in, in the company, especially my co-founders, uh, Eric and Beck, it's really been about doing the thing that we think is going to matter the most right now. Um, back when I decided to join the military, it was obviously spurred by 9-11. I, I started college, I started ROTC. Um, in, in the aftermath of the, uh, the, the Twin Towers attack. And, um, you know, at that stage, I had no idea that I was going to wind up in Iraq um, twice. And, but that's, that's just how, you know, the future unfolds. Um, and at that point, I decided that it was going to be the best use of my um, efforts to go and join the military and, and serve the country. Um, and I went to DIA after my time in the army, um, and, you know, was heading into like 2014 timeframe and decided that, Hey, maybe I could put my skills somewhere else and decided to go get a PhD. But, um, it's really been about 
trying to make the maximum amount of impact on an issue that that is important. There's certainly other issues right now out there that are that are also important. This is just the one that we've we've set our sights on right now. Looking back over your amazing career, Welton, what was the most interesting job you had in the military? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really um, in the military. Uh, I was a reservist at the time, but um, I was an active intel officer in, in the DIA. And I got asked to go deploy to Baghdad in 2011. So at this time, we were starting to withdraw. Um, starting to withdraw from the country, and I remember, you know, being at the one of the palaces when, at that point, Vice President Biden came to Iraq to meet with the Prime Minister and basically, um, you know, have a ceremony to 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 solidify the fact that we were leaving the country. Um, but I was there because I was training Iraqi intelligence officers. Um, on how to do basically analysis, uh, counterterrorism type um, analytic training. And it was not something that I could have foreseen myself doing um, after, you know, starting a career at DIA after, after the Army. But they, they needed somebody who had previous military training and um, could lead a team of folks to do that work. And it, it kind of fell in my lap to do that. So I would say that's probably one of the more unusual places I found myself, um, <laughs> you know, just trying to uh, make and you know, you know how difficult it is to teach Americans analysis. Sure. Um, when we when we talk about the kind of rigorous standards that are that exist promulgated by, you know, ICDs now and um, being something that the DNI really focuses on trying to export that kind of analytic training into a completely foreign culture, even one that I had been in before and uh, experienced, it was not, it was not easy. Um, and I, I, I'm not certain that any of our um, training even really stuck. So uh, yeah, I would consider that pretty interesting. <laughs> I would say so too. Now, did you just wake up one day and say, hey, I want to start a company? And, and the reason I asked that, I've had the opportunity over the years to talk to many many, many um, CEOs and founders of some of the world's largest companies. And I'm always amazed as to the ideas they have or the spark that uh, clearly I don't have. But did you wake up one day and just say, hey, I want to start my own company? No, not at all. This was not on the roadmap, so to speak. Um, I remember, so the company was incubated essentially by Human Rights First, where I was the first chief technology officer. This was right after I had um, spent a couple of years at Johns Hopkins um, doing research on building disinformation detection technology for the U.S. government. And we were building essentially a giant hate speech detector inside of HRF to um, simplify things a little bit. And we saw the run-up to the January 6th attacks on the Capitol. And in the aftermath of J6, we, I was asked by the Board of Human Rights First if I'd be interested in um, spinning out um, you know, uh, into a company, this technology that we had been building. You know, they basically said, hey, it's all well and good that you're building this technology, sharing with other NGOs, but 
feels like the marketplace needs something like this because signals were missed um, in the lead up to Jan 6. And so we, you know, I, I would, I, I want to say that at that point I jumped at the opportunity. It was not like that at all. I mean, I um, told them and, and other people who were involved in, in the spin out, I said, why don't we go find a professional CEO to do this? You know, I'm a, I'm a CTO, I'm a technical person, I have a PhD. Um, let's, let's find somebody who knows how to build and run a business and have them do it because this doesn't feel like something that I should be doing. Uh, my, I think my wife was pregnant at the time. So I was thinking longer term of, hey, maybe, you know, shouldn't take such a risky step of doing a venture back startup, <laughs> um, you know, considering I got a kid on the way. Now I got two, um, you know, and the more we looked at the challenge, the more we looked at what was going on and fleshed out how we would turn the technology into a business, the more it became apparent that, um, you know, somebody at least somewhat technical needed to take the reins of the company. And so ultimately, um, I don't, I don't want to say reluctantly, but certainly, uh, I, you know, it, was, it wasn't without some level of reservation. I decided, hey, like, it should be me. Um, I, should, I should step up to this challenge and do this. Um, and, you know, along the way, it's not like this is a, you know, um, me making decision on my, my own. Beck Jones, our COO, who you've met, um, Eric Kerwin, our CTO. Um, you know, all of their ideas came into this and really helped to, to crystallize the decision in my mind to, to go and, and, and pursue it. So we publicly launched the company December 2021, January 2022, um, and we've been, um, you know, at it ever since. So. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Ontic's Center for Connected Intelligence. In the world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. The center is a hub for the ongoing exchange of security strategies and best practices, insights on current and past trends, and sharing valuable information through expert discussion and analysis. It's made up of seasoned experts across a wide range of disciplines. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Now, I look at someone like you and I see a futurist. I see somebody that's looking over the horizon at threats coming at us from a multitude of different vectors. And as you look out over the horizon, what do you see coming at us that perhaps we're not ready for? Yeah, I mean, the horizon is pretty scary. I think 2024 presents at least a range of possibilities that are all not very good, um, especially from a security standpoint. I think one of the biggest challenges that I see, and I'm going to put my, my psychology hat on for a second, is, um, you know, the, the truth has been contested for quite some time, especially online. 
Um, social media certainly plays a role in that. But one of the bigger challenges that's going to emerge from generative AI and, and that range of technologies, um, you know, everyone's spinning up about, oh, man, there's going to be deep fakes related to the election and um, chat GPT is going to be used to create disinformation and it's going to flood the zone. You know, I'm not as concerned about the content itself. What, what I am concerned about is the erosion of trust in actual evidence when, um, you know, you can have a military intelligence organization, you can have a, a domestic, um, say, say, say you're the FBI or you're the CIA, and you reveal some hardcore piece of evidence that was very difficult to obtain, get it declassified, it, it, it bolsters a, a case for some national security decision. And the first thing that people jump to is, that's fake. Um, you made that. That was ChatGPT, or that was MidJourney, or some of these generative technologies. Um, that, I think, is an even bigger problem. And it's not necessarily technological. Certainly, technology is one of the reasons why we're encountering the problem. But really, it's about convincing and persuading people that something as real is real. And in the past, we would say things like, oh, you know, picture tells a thousand words. Um, I think back to when Colin Powell, um, you know, was in front of the UN and shaking a vial of, I think it was anthrax, yeah. um, and showing showing classified, you know, overhead imagery to the collective audience. And I, I remember seeing that as an undergrad in college, thinking, this is ironclad. He's making the case. He's showing us real stuff. I think that, that that sort of presentation would be absolutely quaint for an audience today because they would look at that stuff and go, oh, you just made that. A, a computer generated that. The computer generated the Iraqi intelligence officer intercepts. Um, you made that audio. You made those pictures. And that, I think, is the real going to be one of the real challenges moving forward with this new range of generative technology that's out there. Not just detecting that it's fake, not just showing people that this is the source. But then coming back and convincing them that the actual thing is the truth and that the thing that they're seeing is not the truth, that is going to be the much more difficult thing that we have to deal with as a society. Yeah, that's fascinating and in many ways very scary. When, you know, I grew up uh, with a generation of, you know, when our government made a statement, for the most part, you know, my father was World War II generation. You, you took it as gospel. And today... There's so much uh, skepticism on any kind of report that comes out that it's you're, you're absolutely spot on with that. Uh, so how does a corporate security team today deal with that in, with a global workforce, whether it be disinformation about their company or you know statements attributed to, let's say, a CEO that perhaps aren't real? Uh, how, how do you get in front of this, Walton? What advice would you have on that? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a real challenge. Um, you know, one of the things that I remember, this was last year, um, there was a Fortune magazine reporter that came and asked me about this this challenge. And one of the things that he, you know, kind of, the, the title of the piece that ultimately came out was, The Big Lie is Coming for You. And he's referring to companies um, that weaponized disinformation 
of the sorts that targeted um, companies this past year. Uh, and then, you know, uh, one of the first cases of this was Wayfair. Um, that's the kind of thing that's going to be impacting security teams moving forward. I would say there's a, there's a few things. First is recognizing that, yes, you have a global workforce. Some of your folks that work inside your company are on these sites that we monitor. So mm-hmm. there there's a percentage of people in your workforce that uh, is encountering this content on a regular basis. And some of the folks are being radicalized by it. Some of them are actively spreading disinformation, maybe even about the company that they work at, claiming that they have insider knowledge, claiming that they are, um, you know, hey, I, yeah, I saw this up front and this is what I saw, right? And just kind of talking um, out of turn, really, uh, about things that they shouldn't be talking about on these sites. So that's, that's one of the first things to recognize is that this is not just a outside the wire problem. This is also a challenge that's facing, and I, and I hear this more and more from people that come to me. How do we reach, um, say, you know, let's say you have mandatory DEI training. What if 15% of your workforce thinks that DEI is some kind of uh, globalist conspiracy theory to, um, you know, do something awful to people, right? That's, right. that's, that's not, your, 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 your slideshow is not going to uh, really work on 15% of your workforce. Even if they click the buttons that says, you know, I, I comply with this, right? Um, I think the second thing is the speed at which these challenges can uh, really uh, become out of hand. So all it takes is one user on one of these platforms to say something. And the next thing you know, it's migrated out to a bunch of other sites. Um, maybe it came with some kind of meme. And you're getting asked by corporate leadership. You're getting asked maybe by, um, maybe you're embedded in the GSOC. All of a sudden, there are signals coming across and there's just a, a, a slew of um, content coming in and you're not aware of it happening, right? And this doesn't usually happen overnight. It's too fast. Um, could take, you know, 72 hours, maybe a week for something to go um, and, and spread that, um, to, to that extent, but you have to be early to it. You have to be on these sites um, and, and looking at this content. That's what we really help our, our uh, the teams that we work with do is see those early indicators um, and and be aware of what the chatter is on the places that are uh, the less traveled for most of the civilian population. Um, and then you know I think. The, the last thing I'll say is you really need to take a kind of coordinated approach to it, right? You say, hey, what if there was something attributed, falsely attributed to a CEO, for example? Um, well, as a, as a security team, you may not be totally plugged into what the PR team is doing. Um, but I think in a lot of ways, you increasingly have to be because those are the things that are kind of coming back um, and you know potentially... Uh, you know, boomeranging in a lot of ways. So, but if you're on the same page, you can be prepared, you know, hey, the CEO is going to say something that might be controversial. Um, That's, I think, one of the ways you can actually prepare yourself, posture yourself for something that's going to come down the pike and then have your resources positioned so that you're not caught flat-footed, you're not 
behind the eight ball when something actually does uh, pop off. Well, that's very prudent advice, Welton. I greatly appreciate you sharing that for our listeners. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? Um, just if folks are interested in getting in touch with us, uh, Pira, P-Y-R-A, tech, Dot com. Um, you can just find us. We do have a free weekly newsletter that we distribute. Um, I think we have like close to 600 subscribers now. Um, you know, started from zero, so uh, it's 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 on the website. You can come find it. And basically, what we do is deliver to your inbox free of charge. Um, kind of what's happening on the fringe alternative networks. Uh, summarize some of the key narratives that you should be aware of. Who's being targeted? That sort of thing. Um, so yeah, if folks are interested, they can subscribe to that. And, um, yeah, just, you know, thanks for, thanks for having me on. This was, uh, this was really nice and hopefully I get to see you soon. Give me that website again for our listeners to subscribe to your mail out. Yeah, it's www.pyratech.com. Well, thank you so much, Walton, for sharing your story and uh, the great things you're doing with your company with us today. Thank you, Fred. It was my pleasure. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monteverdi Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novus. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcasts at ontic.co or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. Thanks for listening.